Hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. As devoted listeners of the podcast probably realize, it's kind of a thread. No single podcast seems to exist in a vacuum exclusive of all the others. And this feels like it's one of those weeks again. We spent a lot of time last week talking about the controversy over State Superintendent Sherry Ibarra's school safety plan, and that's where we have to start the show this week. Clark, you've had a couple of uh, stories following up on the KISS plan. Get us caught up. Yeah, by this point, uh, our regular readers and listeners are familiar with the KISS plan. Uh, it's Superintendent of Public Instruction Sherry Ibarra's proposed $19 million school safety plan, and uh, we keep talking about it because it's very much school safety overall is very much the issue of our Mm -hmm. time, but this has become a big, fat campaign issue, and it's going to be a huge issue uh, for the 2019 legislative session, obviously pending uh, results of November's election, but I have found, uh, we obtained some contracts this week, and we have found uh, kind of a demonstrable way that State Superintendent Sherry Ybarra is moving her KISS program Forward, She's contracted with a school uh, safety consultant to sort of serve as an intermediary, a point of contact between her State Department of Education office and law enforcement agencies, as well as the existing Office of School Safety and Security. And we'll get back to them in a minute. Uh, But this guy is also going to um, provide some recommendations Training is a big part of Superintendent Ibarra's plan, and this contractor is supposed to provide some recommendations or do some research on best practices and statewide training programs that may be available for educators um, or for personnel in school districts. And and this is kind of a big deal, but who she contracted with um, is Matt Schneider. And according to a State Department of Education uh, press release and his online bio, he's a former Ada County Sheriff's deputy um, who owns a kind of a concealed weapons training and self-defense program out in Meridian, a center called Forward Movement Training Center. And so this is a $20,000, up to $20,000 contract um, to really get this KISS program moving forward. But it's kind of interesting, Kevin, because the, uh, the timing yeah, of this, the legislature has let's... never held a hearing on KISS. Yeah, let's definitely get back to that timetable here because uh, the KISS chronology and, and KISS, again, keep Idaho school students safe. Yeah. Um, Sherry Ibarra unveiled this proposal back in March, the waning days of the legislative session, a couple of weeks after the, uh, the horrible shootings in, in Parkland, Florida. But waning days of the legislative session, after Ibarra had gone through the process of proposing a budget uh, and having the school budget right. go through, she proposed this $20 million or so plan, uh, unveiled the idea, said that she would come back and, and seek this sort of funding and this initiative in 2019, assuming, of course, she got reelected. So that was March. Legislature never really took this thing up. Never held a hearing. Never held a hearing. It's never been before the budget committee. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Ibarra released her budget proposal and said that she would seek a supplemental budget for this school year. If the 2019 legislature goes along with it, she would put uh, a bunch of money into a supplemental appropriation to get this program up and running in the 2018-2019 school year. Meanwhile, we ha- we now know that there's a, a contract and a consultant that's been brought on to 
at least sort of move this process along between now and the legislative session and maybe beyond. So interesting chronology. It is, and it's been a, a little bit of a rough rollout. Uh, some of the big education groups, as we've reported earlier this summer, and the Office of School Safety and Security has gone on the record with us saying that the superintendent did not work with them, did not get their feedback, did not get their ideas, did not really even run her plan by them yeah. before bringing it public, and it kind of caught people off guard. They're wondering what it is. They're wondering who she's going to be working with. Yeah, I mean, it goes it goes straight back to March. I mean, I remember when the, the news release came out about the KISS plan. It was, you know, Monday afternoon in March at the legislature. And all of a sudden, kind of out of the blue almost, uh, this news release came out of the Ibarra camp. Well, not camp. I mean, it's not a campaign thing. It came out of the State Department yeah. of Education. But regardless, it seemed to sort of come from out of the blue. So, uh you know, here we are a few months later, kind of unwrapping, you know, this proposal and now finding out about this contract. And as you mentioned, uh, education groups and school security groups, uh, school security consultants trying to figure out how this all fits together. It's, with been what a, they're doing. it's been a pretty rough rollout. And just kind of another example of this rollout, I sort of reported the first part of this saga last week uh, at IdahoEdNews.org and also on last week's podcast. But Representative Wendy Horman, the advisory, the chair of the advisory mm -hmm. committee for this Office of State's Office of School Safety and, and Security, a separate group from Ibarra's. Right. Wendy Horman's the chairman of the board. She asked Representative or she asked Superintendent Ibarra to remove that logo from her website, saying that, hold on here a minute, the Office of School Safety and Security and this board has never endorsed Superintendent Ibarra's plan, much less even worked with her before it was brought public. So that was last Thursday that Horman asked Ybarra to remove the logo. The logo did not come down. Uh, I asked Superintendent Ybarra's spokeswoman about that. She said there are no plans to remove the logo and that... Uh, so it's kind of defining the... bigger now on the web. It is bigger and there's other logos. And, and she's saying that, you know, we're making this the public aware that this is a featured resource. And Wendy Horman is saying hold on here, I'm getting questions from the public about whether we endorse this plan, whether we're working together, whether we're sharing resources. And so it's just been a really interesting rollout. But I asked the State Department of Education this week for clarification on how Ybarra's new school safety and security contractor, this consultant, Matt Schneider, how his role is going to be different than the stuff that's already been underway for two and a half years, the efforts by the Office of School Safety and Security, how these two things would be different. Her staff did not respond to that question at all, and so we're left wondering, because that's also funded by taxpayer right. dollars. Yeah, and let's keep our eye on the ball here a little bit, whether this logo uh, remains on the website or is removed from the website isn't going to make one iota's worth of difference about whether kids are safer in schools no, than, no. Than, than they are now. But it does illustrate just how much tension there is between Ibarra's State Department of Education and this Office of School Safety and Security and Wendy Horman as uh, chairwoman of the, the advisory committee. Also and a very, very important a Very powerful member of the legislature sits on the on the budget writing committee that will eventually have to decide how does the state want to spend money on school security, whether it's uh, Shari Ibarra's plan if she's reelected, whether Cindy Wilson is presenting a plan in 2019, 
you know, the buck kind of stops with uh, the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. Uh, Wendy Horman has been there for a couple of years writing school budgets. All this illustrates is that at a point where the state is uh, is trying to get out ahead, you would imagine, uh, and, and try to come up with a plan to, you know, to make sure that something horribly tragic doesn't happen at an Idaho school. We're debating over logos and logos on websites. It just gives you a sense of just sort of the dysfunction that seems to be developing here. And it's another kind of real tangible example, something you can really wrap your arms around about how the superintendent is not working or is not working well with this other established group that was created by the legislature, created by the governor in 2016 that has visited two-thirds of every Idaho public school building uh, in the state, public school and charter, and has been giving reports about the teamwork and the collaborations that they've established with law enforcement and emergency responders. And so it, it really is curious, you know, how do these plans work together? Could they work together? Are they competing plans, both trying to spend taxpayer dollars for the same purpose, for the same end, and getting duplicative efforts? Um, a lot of unanswered questions at this point, but I mean, it, it definitely all appearances are by the virtue of this contract. And let's be real here, it's only $20,000 mm -hmm. so at a max, and so it's not going to break the bank for Ybarra, but she the very much is... itself is symbolic to some extent. She's I mean, pushing this forward without legislative approval and without funding, uh, and there's a lot of questions about where she's going and what money will be spent, what's this going to cost, what are we going to get for our money... Um, and those questions remain, and so I anticipate we'll be back here on the Extra Credit Podcast a week from today talking about this again. But it is kind of a complicated... You just never know, people. <laughs> it is kind of a complicated story. We had two updates this week. Um, if you want to head over to idahoednews.org, it might be a little easier to read through it because um, there are... It is a little bit complicated, and, and there's a lot of moving parts, but two stories this week at idahoednews.org if you want to check it out, and we will continue to follow up and continue Real to watch school safety. It's an it's an expensive proposal. We're talking about millions of dollars, uh, potentially, of taxpayer money. But it's something that's on everybody's mind right now, uh, that everybody is wondering about and worrying about. Uh, and so it very much is the issue of this campaign, of the next legislative, se legislative session, but overall just of our time. School safety is on everybody's minds right now. So we're going to apply a lot of scrutiny and ask a lot of tough questions on all sides, and, and we'll continue to do that. But that's basically where my reporting is coming from, and, and that's what I learned this week, uh, working with our public records expert, Randy Schrader, to uh, uh, obtain some contracts uh, and try to give the public a little bit more insight into what's going on uh, at this early stage of the development of the KISS proposal. So uh, thanks for bearing we'll, with me, and, and check out the website for, for all the details. But uh, We'll keep watching. Yeah, absolutely. A couple other topics we want to get to this week. Kevin, you've done a great job uh, for the last couple of years of following the transition to higher education and the issue of student indebtedness. And there was a new report that came out this week that framed uh, the debt that Idaho graduates have after graduating from a four-year university and how that compares to our peers both nationwide and in the West couple surprising findings in there. Mm -hmm. Why don't you walk us through, first of all, what the report was and what it found? Okay. So the report that came out on Wednesday looked at student loan debt and compared how student loan debt compares from state to state and how it compares uh, nationally. 
and, and it's definitely a mixed verdict for Idaho and the numbers get kind of wonky and I got to confess that I had to come back into the story <laughs> Wednesday and, and make a fix about what exactly the numbers said and what exactly they mean but here's your here's your takeaway on the numbers what this nonprofit group found out about Idaho is that about 60% of Idaho's college graduates, the class of 2017, you know, students who left campuses with a bachelor's degree, about 60% of those students took out some level of loans, some amount of loans. So about three-fifths of the students had to go into debt to get their degree. And of those students, the average debt came to close to $27,000. Now, that's a lot, a lot of money. It's, I spent more than I made as my first year as a journalist. And, you know, that's important. <laughs> that, that's kind of the rule of thumb that you hear a lot of financial aid folks talk about is that if you're going to college and you come out of your, your – if you come out of college with a debt that's equal to or less than your first year's salary, you're, you're going to be okay financially that this is a good long-term investment. That's kind of that rule of thumb. 27000 is a fairly considerable debt load for, yes. uh, for a lot of students. It's a little bit less than the national average, uh, which came in just a little bit shy of 29000 So for students who went into debt nationally, the average debt was 29000 And here's where it gets kind of interesting, where, where I found it kind of interesting. The study found, no big surprise here, that students in the Northeast tend to rack up higher student loan debts stands to reason because you're talking about private schools yep. and even the state-run schools in the northeast much more expensive than you will see out west so what they found is that students in the west their debt loads tend to be less and that's definitely the case most of the uh, most of the western states have fairly low student loan debt relative to that national average but idaho's debt is higher than most other states in the West. Just a case in point, Utah uh, yeah. came in with I the that was lowest average student loan debt. We're talking about maybe eighteen, nineteen thousand dollars on average for students in Utah who graduated. A significant difference. I mean, yeah, ask yourself if you're coming out of college, nineteen thousand dollars in debt versus twenty seven thousand dollars in debt. All of a sudden Logan or Provo look a little bit more attractive. <laughs> and, and and I guess that's kind of why I found this uh, interesting and and you know, an interesting story to write this week and to look at as we take a, a closer look at uh, life after high school. You know, we work on a series that we're, we're going to run in November. You know, that that loan fear is real for a lot of students. That, that fear of going into debt is very real. I mean, I spent uh, Monday in Twin Falls at a Hispanic Youth uh, Student Summit. Uh, one of the seminars that I sat in on was kind of a you know, financial aid 101 for high school kids trying to figure out and, and navigate college. You know, you talk to students, uh, you talk to advisors, there's a genuine concern about going into debt for college and whether that is, you know, and whether advisors can say, look, it's a long-term investment, you're right. going to be okay, you, you just have to see it through and be prepared to pay it off. Even so, I mean, that is, you know, these debt numbers are, are you know, are going to be a concern to, to parents and, and kids as they're trying to make this decision about what to do after high school. So what's happening in Idaho relative to other states, I, I think it's important to, to, it was important to put those numbers into perspective. It's, it's definitely a mixed verdict. 
We link to the study so you can look at the numbers for yourself. We have a graphic that kind of shows where Idaho stacks up compared to our neighbors. Anyway, check out the story. It's at idahoednews.org. Yeah, a good report and really a great – it dovetails nicely with the project that you're working on right now and, and just as a little bit of a, a promotion, a little bit of a, a tease for folks. That's going to be coming out in November, right? In November, what I'm going to do is a follow-up looking at Idaho's 60% goal and looking at the obstacles the state faces to try to get to that 60% goal, especially trying to get students to continue their education beyond high school when we're talking about rural students, uh, students coming out of poverty, uh, students coming uh, out of, uh, you know, families of color, whether we're talking about uh, Latino students or Native American students, looking at some of the demographics that kind of get in the way of Idaho uh, getting more of, of its high school graduates to continue their education. Affordability is a big component in that series. So looking at these uh, debt numbers uh, definitely dovetails into what I'm working on down the road, which will run in November. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll roll that out in November, give you plenty of information about uh, where you can find those stories, uh, how you can learn more about our reporting. But a vitally important project, the 60% goal is absolutely the state's signature goal for education. It's not a go-on goal. It's about young adults possessing a degree, having completed some sort of degree or a certificate, a professional certificate certainly counts to that goal, but the goal itself has been an absolute riddle uh, to state officials from the governor's office to the legislature uh, all over the place. Nobody has been able to move the needle on that for a decade. And, and where that affordability factors into the 60% goal is, like like you said, Clark, it's a completion goal. Yeah. So it's, it's a matter of if a student starts going to a two-year college or a four-year college and starts uh, going into debt to get there, do they have the uh, financial wherewithal and maybe the personal wherewithal and the academic uh, skills to see this process through to a degree, to see it through to completion? And, yeah. Because the goal is a completion goal. And whether a student completes college or not, if you take out loans, got to pay them back. So and, this is this all does tie together. And one other thing that I know that's on your radar, but it's not just enough to complete it in Idaho, we have to keep them here. So if they get their computer science degree at Boise State or University of Idaho and then move out to Seattle, guess what? That doesn't help the goal any. Right, right. I mean, this is a completion goal and it pertains to the population in the state and, and college or post-secondary completion. So it all gets kind of wonky. It all gets kind of uh, confusing. But definitely affordability and, and student loan debt is a big factor in all of this. All right. I'm looking forward to your project again. Head over to IdahoEdNews.org to get caught up on this week's study and, and some of the context where you put it in perspective. Idaho's debt load next to our neighbors out west. I'm looking forward to that project in November. What I'm really looking forward to is November's election. We're getting closer and closer. And you started tracking some interesting endorsements uh, that came out this week. But one or two of them surprised me a bit, Kevin, but tell me what endorsements you tracked and what they mean. Busy week for uh, two education groups and, and endorsements that, uh, that we, we heard about earlier this week. Two prominent education groups, the Idaho School Boards Association and the Idaho Education Association, uh, teamed up and came out in favor of Proposition 2. Now, that is the Medicaid expansion initiative that we'll have on the November 6th ballot. ISBA, not so surprising here because uh, their leaders have been speaking about Medicaid expansion and have been speaking favorably about Medicaid expansion. They had kind of a, uh, 
a public sparring, uh, a, a war of guest opinions, <laughs> yeah. if you will, uh, between ISBA leadership and Wayne Hoffman, the head of the Idaho Freedom Foundation, which is right now probably the lead opponent of Medicaid expansion. The question being, and there is an education tie, believe me, we get there. Uh, the question of is Medicaid expansion good for schools? Does it uh, does it help education or hurt education? Uh, ISBA's argument has been that uh, this is helpful to schools for you know, for a lot of reasons. You know, first of all, students, you know, it's a student health issue. It's a it's a, a childhood health issue. Uh, access to to medical care. But the ISBA has been arguing that what this does, if you go with Medicaid expansion, you relieve some of the pressure on local budgets, on county budgets to, uh, to take care of catastrophic health care. That, in turn, may make it easier for rural school districts to pass a supplemental levy or a bond issue. So that's been their centerpiece argument, has been for months. The Freedom Foundation has argued, look, this is going to cost the state money and it's going to increase the competition for state dollars and that's going to eventually hurt every other state program, including education. So you've had that back and forth going back to July. So no big surprise that the School Boards Association formally and publicly came out endorsing Proposition 2, uh, along with the Idaho Education Association, the state's teachers union. So those two groups are on board. The Idaho Association of School Administrators, another prominent education group, the three groups often, not always, but often uh, tend to lobby together on policy issues. IASA is not taking a position on Medicaid expansion and probably won't between now and November 6th. So that was Tuesday's endorsement news. Wednesday, the Idaho Education Association came out and endorsed Republican Congressman Mike Simpson, who is seeking an 11th term in the U.S. House of Representatives. The IAA's talking point is that Simpson, who sits on the House Appropriations Committee, has been instrumental in fighting for the, the uh, Secure Rural Schools Program, which provides uh, federal dollars to school districts in timber country, kind of an offset to uh, you know, not being able to tax those uh Federal timber to not have the population and have, base and right, the property. And, and, and not yeah. have timber receipts in a, at the level they've been in the past. So it's kind of an offset to funding that had been coming to schools. Oddly enough, a lot of the, the districts that are really beneficiaries of that Secure Rural Schools program are in North Idaho. Not his, North Central Idaho, not his congressional not, district. Not in Mike Simpson's congressional district. Yeah. But anyway, interesting that IEA wound up endorsing a, a Republican uh, congressional incumbent. Generally, not always, but generally the IEA's endorsements and their endorsement dollars have, have tended to go to Democratic candidates, but that's not always the case, and we've seen that this year. Right before the primary, uh, the IEA's Political Action Committee gave $5,000 to uh, Lieutenant Governor Brad Little right as he was wrapping up mm -hmm. what turned out to be a successful campaign in that hotly contested uh, gubernatorial primary. So you see it happen. I mean, the, the IEA has uh, endorsed Cindy Wilson in the uh, state superintendent's race, has given money to, to her as she uh, runs against a Republican incumbent, Sherry Ibarra. So it's been interesting to kind of track what IEA has been up to in terms of the endorsement process. So uh, a, a busy week there, and we'll 
We'll watch the endorsements, and in a couple of weeks, when the uh, Sunshine Reports finally come out, uh, we'll, we'll track some dollars as well. Not that we've been talking about that behind the scenes and speculating and eagerly looking forward to that uh, disclosure, but uh, yeah. We'll, we'll watch for the reports. That's, uh, that's what we do. We enjoy that. I cannot finish this podcast without talking about the week's hottest political story. Yes. Fantastic reporting. Cynthia Sewell, one of the best reporters in the state of Idaho. She works for the Idaho Statesman. On Thursday morning, she broke an explosive story about the Paulette Jordan campaign and the fallout from those resignations. Uh, you read it. You uh, you kind of linked to it, Kevin. What did Cynthia report, and why does this matter? Well, it's been a very uh, tumultuous week for Paulette Jordan's campaign. It started late last She's week. She's the Democrat running against Lieutenant yes, Governor right. Brad yeah. Little. Okay. Yes. So it all started uh, late last week. And again, this is uh, a story Cynthia Sewell broke uh, late Friday. Three of her campaign staffers left abruptly. And, and now we're you know less than two, two months away from Election Day. So you've got this turnover within the, within the campaign staff. Very, very mysterious, very abrupt um, turnover. One of the things that we found out along the way, one of the things that that, that Cynthia reported was that uh, the campaign staffers who left were not going to talk about why they left because they signed non-disclosure agreements with the campaign. Now, I have never heard of that in my years of covering politics and my years of covering Idaho elections. I've never heard of campaign staff being asked to, to sign an NDA. So that's, and we'll get back to that. Fast forward to the story that, that Cynthia broke on Thursday. Uh, what she found, she got a resignation letter from one of those staffers who left, who uh, harshly criticized, strongly criticized the, the Jordan campaign for focusing on building up a, a super PAC, a federal super PAC that will uh, try to lobby on, on, on tribal issues. And the super PACs are to, these shadowy... Uh, these shadowy groups that can raise untold sums of money. There's transparency questions. Uh, there's questions about where the money's coming from and who's behind them. Uh, but these shadowy groups that can un- raise unlimited amounts of money. That's what a super PAC is. Right. And in they're a real su- simplified and they are version. supposed to operate independently of a campaign. So, you know, the, the, you know, the concern that this staffer raised in, in his resignation letter was that instead of working on trying to win a campaign, win, it, win the gubernatorial race, that this, this campaign staff has been focused on trying to build up this, this new super PAC that just formed in July. So a lot of questions about uh, focus in that campaign and, and questions about the independence between the super PAC and, and the campaign. Cynthia breaks the story down in in great detail. There's a, some remarkable reporting here. So you really have to read her story uh, to get the, the full picture of it. But I, I let's go I, back to the non-disclosures. We really the, do have to. Without getting lost in the fantastic reporting, and Cynthia probably deserves to win Reporter of the Year award again this year. She won it last year, but she, she mounted a pretty strong re-election bid. But let's year. not that, that a, let's a not lose track story. of the non-disclosure. Uh, agreements, which are so unusual. And then Cynthia also reported on the existence of those. But we were talking about how problematic that could be if that carried forward into uh, from a campaign to someone who's elected. Right. And, and you know, 
Since the word of the NDAs came out, uh, Jordan has said that uh, this is not something that she will expect of her cabinet members. But, you know, you, you at some level, you have to look at how a campaign is run as sort of an indicator of how a, a candidate might run an office or might, you know, head, you know, you know, service, you know, CEO, state government. It's not a far reach to think about if we ever get to a point where a state board of education member is expected to sign an NDA and that state board member resigns and maybe resigns for just innocuous reasons, time management, uh, what have you, be unable to talk about why he or she left the state board of education. And that's the, you know, that's the policymaking board that, that deals with K-12 and higher education issues in the state. And if, if you can't find out why a state board member left, uh, left that appointed position because of an NDA, that is a, no pun intended, that is a dark day for state government. That, that is the antithesis of transparency. So that's, you know, I, the story about the super PAC is, is amazing reporting, but I don't want to lose sight of this, uh, this NDA revelation that, that came out last week because that that, that is definitely uh, it's concerning in terms of you know you would not want to see appointment you would not want to see appointees you would not want to see cabinet members ever placed in a position where they, they you know where they sign an NDA in order to hang on to a job or get a job. Well, the example I was thinking about, what what if Paulette Jordan is elected and then under her administration as governor, what if there was a big uh, controversy with, say, a multi-million dollar, multi-year state contract. We've Not seen, exactly unheard yeah, of in the we, state of Idaho, yeah, if you're familiar imagine with that, people, the broadband right? mess, the DMV situation we find ourselves in now, uh, Medicaid old Medicaid contracts on, yeah. of years past. What if there was a real scandal involving a state contract, but all of a sudden state employees in the governor's office were prohibited from talking about it because of non-disclosure agreements? Then we have real problems. Yeah, it, it's... It, it makes it harder for us to do our job, but more importantly, for it makes it harder for taxpayers to track what's going on in state government. So if we ever got to that point, and I hope we never get there, it, you know, it's, it, it would be a, a real step backward in terms of government transparency. And you know, as has been pointed out by, uh, by others this week, this Jordan campaign has focused on transparency, has said that transparency in state government is a hallmark of the campaign. You know, you know, this has not been a uh, has not been a good week for the Jordan campaign uh, in a lot of ways. And it does not take an overactive imagination uh, to speculate as to how this could be a problem if she, if she were elected and uh, brought forward the non disclosure agreements and the secrecy to uh, an administration to the governorship. Not, not that reporters have overactive imaginations, but but it's very easy to see where this becomes a uh, a, a concern and becomes a real. Uh, impediment to following the dollars, to, to following what's happening in state government. So really good reporting from Cynthia Sewell about the NDAs, about the super PAC. Go back and read what she's been writing for the past week. It's uh, it's explosive and important stuff. Yeah, And what, we're only about six weeks away from Election Day. We're, It'll be we're here getting there. You know we're it. winding down. All we're right. I, that's everything I wanted to get to this week. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Extra Credit Podcast. We have a lot of fun 
breaking down this complicated intersection of school policy and school politics. As always, you can give us a follow if you're on Twitter, at Idaho Ed News, where we break all of our stories and live tweet the biggest meetings. But thanks so much for joining us on Extra Credit. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.